Coming up next, the booking reads Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Hey everybody, welcome to the booking. My name is Nathan. I am your humble and obedient host. Yeah. And I am joined by our good friend, good friend of the show, in fact, participating member of the show, and a man who you should pay by getting our Patreon up to $2,000 at patreon.com forward slash the booking. His name is Brandon Chasteen. He is the scholar who is a baller of all things literary. Yes. And right now he is bathed in morning light. We are doing this early in the morning and he is, we were just commenting before we hit record, he looks like a Vermeer. There's light streaming in through the window. There's this soft angelic glow around Brandon. It's really quite one of the most beautiful things that anyone has ever seen. And yeah. How you doing, Brandon? I'm doing pretty well. That's good. Glad I'm the scholar. I'm glad I'm back to the scholar who's a baller. What were you recently? I think I was like a Roman Catholic poet or something like that. Oh, yes. The Irish Roman Catholic poet. (laughs) I forgot about that. You just got to go back to the, you got to go back to the original. Well, the original would be the the PhD ABD, but. That's gone. We moved away from that. Some guy complained on one of the bad, the one star reviews, like, eh, they're it's not really a title, it's a state. Yeah, exactly. So once, it's a state once the PhD is complete, then we can go to something else. Is anything really a title, though? Isn't everything just a state of being? I mean, doctor is kind of a title. <laughs> yeah. Okay, that's true. <laughs> then you can call me Dr. Chastain once that's in the bag. Oh, that'll be fun. You should hurry up yeah. and get that in the bag so we can say, we can introduce the Reverend Jacob Menzel and the illustrious, the illustrious doctor. Chastine. Yeah. Little old me. Well, Brandon, we got to talk about this Gawain and the Green Knight. Nathan, I wish I was there so I could give you some kisses. This is full of kisses between men, this this book. Yeah, well, you know, when you make a bet with a dude that you'll give each other the stuff that one person takes during a day, as one does, and then a lady kisses you, then... You yeah. got to kiss the dude. Yeah. You got to so, kiss the dude. You got to kiss the dude. As as It's kind of a variation on what that crab guy from The Little Mermaid once once told us. Yeah. The Whatever his name is. The not a crab. Yeah, he is a crab. Sebastian. First of all, though, Brandon, I, ha- I have to clear up. I, ha- I have a question on last week's context that yeah. comes to us via my lovely wife. She... Loved the episode as she does all the episodes, but she did not really understand the what the different texts were. I mean, she knew that they were manuscripts that came from a certain period, but she didn't understand. I think whether they were histories or oh, whether like they were the- literary documents, particularly the Mababagada. Ding dong. The Mabignogian was a collection of uh, Welsh myths and legends, kind of posed as history, but it would have been collected in the, what did we say, 12th and 13th centuries is kind of when mm-hmm. the collection came together. So it would be along the lines of somebody beginning to collect like old Roman fairy tales and then writing them down. They don't know really who wrote them down, but they mm-hmm. did appear together around that time. So yeah, it's a collection of stories, basically. And would people at the time have been, I mean, I know we talked about critics of the time saying some of this stuff was spurious, but did did people take them seriously as histories when they came out? I actually don't know the answer to that. I'm guessing they would have known that they were more along the lines of stories, but I'm sure there were those out there who took them seriously as actual history. But Maybe this is a, a better question for... You It'd know. be along the lines of like Homer, you know, when he finally collected or somebody finally wrote down Homer's epic. 
there might have been some people out there who thought there was some truth mixed in with the stories, but most people would have probably taken it as an epic poem. Right. So, Do you have, maybe this is a better question for an anthropologist who's a baller of reading or a sociologist who's a baller of reading. Yeah. But uh, what is your theory on, if you have one, on why certain stories attach themselves to these like what 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 sticks and why you know what i mean like why 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 these stories and not other stories how how do how do these certain things become canon and accumulate over the years well there has been a lot of work that's done on this so you guys on sound of sanity have talked about joseph campbell before right yeah and you guys i know have talked about oh the guy my it's too early in the morning nathan not Freud, but the other guy. Young. Young, thank you. I yeah. ain't so young anymore, so my nope. brain doesn't work. Um, <laughs> Young's not so young anymore. He's dead. He is. He's a moldering in the grave right there with John Brown. I don't <laughs> think they're buried together. <laughs> nope, uh, you heard it here on the booking. <laughs> John Brown wasn't buried with Carl Young. One star. Yeah. yeah. Hold on just a minute. Sure. My dogs are barking. Can you? Are you picking up on that? No. Okay, well, good. They've... Decided to start barking right now, right as we start talking. I am otherwise alone in the house because everybody else is off doing things. But so, and then you also have Northrop Fry who did his theories of archetypes. But, and I tend to agree with a lot of what these guys would argue is that the stories that stick are, I think there are probably two reasons behind it. One, because it gives sort of a national uh, mythology to a a group and and Mm. unifies them and explains their purpose. So you see that with Virgil's Aeneid. I think the reason that became so essential to Rome was because that's kind of what it did for them. And also Romulus and Remus and those old myths right. that explain, like, where are you from? Why are you here as a people? And it gives you an identity and something to build off of. We see that with our own kind of mythologizing of our forefathers. Sure. Right? With America, we've done kind of the same thing. And then I also think that the other stories that work really well, like... Like some of the ones that I showed you from the Mad Nogan last time, a lot of those are the classic hero tale. He has to go out and test himself against something. He has to descend into both temptation and potentially hell at the lowest point, like you see in the Odyssey, and is eventually either proven to be worthy or proven to have needed to be purified or sanctified in some way, and then finally comes out and is shown to be the hero that you could admire. Mm-hmm. But that's and that's kind of what Joseph Campbell argues, right? Yeah, as to where the myth. So I agree with what he's saying there as well. And you just and they pick up on these deep human realities that attach themselves easily to a, a people. So yeah, attach the, themselves the, to what the people want to either think of themselves or what moves them. The the Jungian school of thought, and therefore the Campbellian school of thought, is almost pseudo spiritual although they're always a little wobbly on this point but it's yeah. like, it's it's almost platonic like there are these forms out there you could think of them that way there are these ideas these archetypes like father like yes and that's son. what northrop fry was playing off of as well with his school of archetypes that there are these primitive concepts that are in our subconscious that appeal to all of us Mm-hmm. Because they resonate with some truth that's inside of all of our unconscious minds. Right. And so that's what they would argue. I mean, basically all they're doing is finding a way of saying that we were created with certain purposes. And it appeals to us when we see stories that resonate with those purposes. Right. Right. I mean, God made us with specific um, goals and purposes in mind. And... The Jungian, Campbellian, Northrop Fryian mm-hmm. school of thoughts are just ways to get around having to admit that God made us and made us for a reason. Yeah, for some reason, these fellows find it much more intriguing to posit that there's some kind of a passive force achieving all that instead of an active one, which yeah. I find fascinatingly lame. Like. Yeah, so the idea of the hero, the idea of, Mm -hmm. uh, they all play off the same thing. It's the idea of the hero, the idea of striving against what's evil, the idea of sacrifice, death, resurrection. They'll all see these things, even 
to the point that they get into our modern society. So what's his name? Dan Harmon. Mm -hmm. Did you know that pretty much every story he writes, even though they're wicked? So he's the guy who's behind uh, like Rick um, and Morty, Rick and, Morty and, 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 and stuff like that. Community, that show. Mm -hmm. Every single episode he writes follows that sort of Campbellian model of the hero strives, the hero descends, the hero dies and resurrects, the hero becomes the hero. Mm -hmm. So... I think it's hard to get away from it, actually. Like, but he's he, just he, intentional about it. Right. And that's, he's a successful and rich and man. Mm -hmm. um, but like, but it's that idea that eventually saved, C well, not saved C.S. Lewis, but eventually argued C.S. Lewis into a corner. Right. With uh, Tolkien. The fact that look at all these archetypes and all of these things appeal to you and everybody else, these myths of the hero and the, and the risen hero. And, to Lewis, it became clear that that's because they were just all dim shadows of the one true resurrection narrative. Hmm. I hate using narrative, actually. Slap me across the screen, Nathan. All right. Thanks. I just slapped Brandon across the screen. Yeah, Warhorn has invested in those gloves that if he puts his hand in his glove on his end, and then it'll form into the hand that I have here on my end and can slap me. Yeah, we sank millions of dollars into technology just so that I could slap Brandon. And so when we ask you to support our Patreon, that that's really what we need. <sighs> it was probably a poor investment, but probably, but Hey, your money is being spent. Yeah. Your money's being spent. That's the important thing. You know, why doesn't the government, the government should, <laughs> that should be the new government motto. <laughs> your money is being spent. <laughs> yes, there, there should just be campaign ads and yeah. things like that. I'm Joe Biden. Your money is being spent. So does that? Well, that's it. Go ahead. And then, as far as manuscripts go, when you go to the Middle Ages, and the, it's just really difficult to, because you'll have these libraries, like even the Beowulf text, like nobody really knows where it came from. They just randomly found it in a library, mm -hmm. in like the in close around the Renaissance era. And I think it's that way with a lot of those texts. Like they know for a fact that Geoffrey Monmouth, old Galfric himself, or remember. Because we got onto like Galfridic stuff. You're the one who solved that puzzle, Nathan. Yes. Yes, indeed. Um, that was the one that brought demons in, into the guy, wasn't it? Yeah. So, been, such an untruthful book that just laying it on top of someone made them more demon possessed. We read a bit, a bit of that last. Did you get possessed or anything or tortured by any demons? You know, not more than usual. Yeah. Same here. So, I'm not really buying that Monmouth was responsible for all that. Yeah. But yeah, like with Monmouth, he's getting to the period where we know for a fact that he wrote that because he's a he's a documented figure with other historical records around the time. And that book actually was, so that was the history of the kings of England. That was supposed to be a history. Mm -hmm. It just, and we briefly talked about, we compared him to the Venerable Bede. And, you know, that was before history had the illustrious uh, reputation it has today mm -hmm. <laughs> where it's always based on fact right right just like um, the news yeah just like the news and that's why this is all i mean i'm laughing while i say this because one thing i try to tell my students is you can't even trust history books really you got to learn discernment with everything you read mm -hmm. you've got to learn to ask questions of the writers like where did you get your sources and stuff but like guys like monmouth at least they were honest they didn't care about sources they just took whatever they could find and then made a good story out of it. And he mm -hmm. made up half the stuff he did about Al Arthur. But we wouldn't have the King Arthur we know and love today without it. I, I love those kinds of histories. I love... We have uh, the Sir Gawain and the Green Knight that we're going to read today. Or we're it's, so today. It's, it's so much fun to read like a Herodotus or a... Oh, what's that guy's name? I can't pull his name. The the guy that wrote the lives of all the famous... Plutarch? Like, Plutarch, yeah. Plutarch's so much fun. And if Plutarch was accurate, then... It wouldn't be quite as fun. He would not be quite as fun. We need miracles and great <laughs> deeds and heroes and, you know, we got we to gotta meet those archetypes. The whole archetype theory is a good one, Brandon, but I think that the reason that stories accumulate is in order to shore up structures of power to keep white men in places of privilege and position. I did forget about that argument, Nathan. I'm glad you brought it up. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, definitely. Arthur represents the intelligentsia. Not the intelligentsia, he represents the bourgeois class, mm -hmm. for sure. And, well, he's um, 
he's rooting out the pagan element, the the dark element, yeah. people of color, the other. Yep. He demonized, is, destroyed. He's normalizing violence mm-hmm. as a tool of oppression. I mean, he's the whole legend of Arthur. The whole idea of the uh, vestige of authority being founded in the white man, mm-hmm. particularly the male, right? It's got to be the man, the male. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. The sure. story starts with sexual assault. For crying out loud, it's normalizing that kind of stuff. For crying out loud. For crying out loud. And 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 what are women good for except for to lurk under the water and give swords to men? I know. Phallic symbols. Or be saved by all the really strong men out there. Yep. Or be used by their demon husbands to try and kiss and seduce Gawain as some kind of a bizarro test yeah don't have you ever read don quixote not all the way through i will confess it has like some. the realist version of this story because there's someone who tells this sad story to don quixote as he's traveling along and it's like the what if this actually happened because mm-hmm. what ends up happening is the wife and the sir gawain version in that story end up running off together or something like that so yeah of course they do <laughs> <laughs> so you know, if there's one thing that I, one bit of wisdom I could pass on to our listeners, don't try and enact elaborate psychosexual traps for people. It just always backfires. It's not a good idea. I've been, for some stupid reason, I've been listening to Atlas Shrugged, which is which I hate. In in Nathan, my Nathan, no, why? Look, I don't know, just because I thought I might as well check it off my list. You know, you kind of have to. I mean, you, I've read The Fountainhead. I never got around to Atlas Shrugged. Well, Nathan shrugs at how lame this book is, but it's, Isn't it's she just a full, bad writer. She is a bad writer. And it's We're making kind of the somebody thing. mad out there by saying this, too. But guess what? You heard it here. Ayn Rand <laughs> couldn't write her way out of a paper sack. Right. She, she really, she, she really. Couldn't and and we're not going to help her out of the paper sack because she'll accuse us of 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 propagating a system of helping the we I don't know I hate her <laughs> her philosophy drives me crazy I'm just going to say I know we probably we're a conservative podcast we probably have big Ayn Rand fans listening and you know I'm all for free market capitalism folks but but you know what's nice is not being a jerk. And Ayn Rand does not really incorporate that very well into her boring philosophical musings. Anyway, the only reason I brought that up is because Atlas Shrugged is just full of these crazy characters coming up with these bizarro schemes to try and test other people with these philosophies. And it's really silly. And I don't think that people should do that. And I don't think people actually do do that, which is why. Ayn Rand is such a bad writer. One of the reasons, one of many reasons. The other would be her really bad wooden writing. That's that's a that's a pretty yeah that's a pretty high reason up there. Anyway, we're not here to talk about Atlas Shrugged. Are we not? We're here to talk. Oh, by the way, we should say Jake was joining us for this podcast, but a green demon knight came in, challenged him to take a hack at the demon knight's head jake did and the demon knight was beheaded and jake's was arrested for manslaughter yeah just turned out he was a guy who painted himself green (laughs) yeah it was really uh and a lot of you know he really needed to be in an like an institute to help him right but and but jake was just so excited after reading this book he couldn't help himself yep 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 he grabbed the guy's sword but, you know, the first thing, the first sign of trouble should have been that this guy had a sword. A real really sword. Don't... What was sad is Jake was kind of laughing because I think he thought it was plastic, mm-hmm. like just a fake sword. And said, oh, look, guys, I'm Sir Gawain. I'm going to cut this dude's head off. Right. And then, lo and behold, he did cut the guy's head off. And it was, yeah, we were all very shocked. Yeah. <laughs> so. we, were, we, 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 we were shocked. And the newspapers have picked it up and they've said white pastor beheads person of color 
because the guy was green. Yeah. So it's <laughs> so not looking good, guys. No, it's it's not looking good for Jake. So let's talk about Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. You got any special context for this one? I don't remember whether we talked about this one's placement in last week's episode or not. I mean, there's not a whole lot to say about it. It's similar to the... We already mentioned it. What am I saying? It's it's similar to Beowulf. Good grief. Mm-hmm. In the sense that we don't really know who wrote the poem. Like, we don't have a name of the poet. They call him the Gawain poet or poet. I think that typically this is in a cycle, which I have the book right here. And so it all it's all in one manuscript together. It's been dated to the late 14th century, meaning that... And this is always interesting to put these things in context like this. It's kind of like realizing that Jane Austen and Mary Shelley, all those people were living in the same time. They were contemporaries. Mm -hmm. So people have heard that probably the Pearl, right? I'm sure that's Mm -hmm. another famous poem that people have heard about. Right. And it's kind of, it's, it's taken from the Pearl of Great Price, that story from the Bible. And it's a long a poem along the lines of Gawain, but it's not an Arthurian story. It's more of one of these meditative, not mystic, but meditative. If anybody's ever read The Rood, mm-hmm. the, uh, R-O-O-D, about the cross, it's similar to that. So anyways, in this manuscript, you have the pearl, patience, and purity, and then you also have our pearl, cleanness, and patience, depending on the translation you have. And mm-hmm. then Sir Gawain and the Green Knight is in there with them. Let's see. Actually, this had some... Here we go. This is from the introduction to the book that I have. Can I read it? Sure, please. Pearl, cleanness, or purity, patience, and Sir Gawain and the Green Knight are contained in a small and undistinguished manuscript of the end of the 14th century. The four poems are illustrated by crudely drawn pictures and colors. Like the pearl poets, Phoenix of Araby, this manuscript is unique and phoenix-like. It survived the fire that consumed so many of the cotton manuscripts in 1731. So the only reason we have this is because it didn't burn. Hmm. Otherwise, English literature would have lost its best book of romance and three of its finest religious poems. All four poems are written in the same dialect, which has been localized in the Northwest Midland area, where the counties of Cheshire, Staffordshire, and Derbyshire adjoin. All four have stylistic and metrical features in common, and it is evident that they must be by the same author or by authors who have influenced each other. So Hmm. like a group of buds. Like if... Nathan, Jake, and I, we all got together and decided to write a book of poetry, and then we all died, and mm. 200 years later it got found, you know. We would probably have similar styles, because we're all friends. Right. Maybe. I don't know. It's a good theory. that would be a, a loose analogy for everybody there. <laughs> in spite of various guesses learned and not so learned, the identity of the author or authors remains unknown. So we do know, however most scholars think that it was in the 14th century, which would make this a contemporary of the Canterbury Tales by Chaucer, which this has a very different style and tone than the Canterbury Tales. So that's why it's so interesting to think that they were around the same time. And what, where, when, sorry. So here's, here's actually a conclusion that J.R.R. Tolkien and E.V. Gordon, after reviewing the text illusion style and themes came to, you want me to read this? Please. He was a man of serious and devout mind, though not without humor. He had an interest in theology and some knowledge of it, though an amateur knowledge perhaps, rather than a professional. He had Latin and French and was well enough read in French books, both romantic and instructive. I mean, because obviously he had heard of Gawain and Mordred Le Fay, not mm-hmm. to Morgan Le Fay, sorry, Mordred Le Fay. No, Mordred Le Fay. <laughs> <laughs> Morgan Le Fay, which means that he was familiar somewhat with like Chrétien de Troyes and the French romances. If you don't know what we're talking about, go and listen to our first Arthurian episode. Yeah, jerk. We we talk a lot about the Welsh weird pagan roots and the more romantic French roots that are the the roots that blossom up into the tree that we know of as Arthur. I'm so disappointed in myself. He had Latin and French, (laughs) both romantic and instructive, but his home was in the West Midlands of England, so much as language shows, and his meter and his scenery, apparently the scenery in these poems show that he would have been very familiar with the West Midlands of England. And I don't know what that looks like. Probably should look that up. I've heard that it looks a lot like the scenery in Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Oh, well, there you go. It, is this in the same meter style as 
Beowulf? Because at least my translation was doing the double alliteration thing. Yeah, so if we look at it. So this is kind of um, a mix of the two, because once you get towards the end, so let me read the first stanza of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight for you. Sithen the siege and the assault was ceased at Troy. The birth Britained and brent to bronze and asks. The talk that the trams of treason there wrought was tried for his treachery, the truest on earth. So yeah, so you have that sort of alliterative construction. But then once you get to the end, and they have particular names for this. Hang on just a minute. Verse form. So the, the, the actual poetic name for this style, and it's pretty unique to this, is the Bob and Will. Mm-hmm. in which the bob is the very short line, sometimes only two syllables, followed by the will, longer lines with internal rhyme. Mm. So this is, I, I'll just read you this real fast. This is actually just as helpful as me explaining it. Does it sound okay? Absolutely. This is the alliterative revival style. It's typical of the 14th century, apparently. And instead of focusing on the metrical syllabic count and rhyme, the alliterative form of this period usually relied on the agreement of a pair of stressed syllables at the beginning and another pair at the end. So, in other words, exactly like the alliterative verse of Beowulf, right? Mm-hmm. There's, you have the Sazira in the end, everything that you have there. So, the Gawain poet's going to be freer with his convention. The poet broke the alliterative lines into variable length groups and ended the stanza with a rhyming section of five lines known as the Bob and Will. So, so you have what happens if, if you read it. So, you didn't actually look at this as you read it, right? Right. I listened to it. Sorry, should I have said that? No, 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 it's fine. Okay. Yeah. So you can see it here, Nathan, but mm-hmm. they can't. People can look it up. You can't really either until I figure this stupid camera out. There. Yeah. See that little short line there? Mm-hmm. And then you have the longer four there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the Bob and Will. Interesting. So okay. you have the alliterative uh, chunk at the beginning. So this king lay at Camelot upon Christmas. So you, there you hear the alliteration going on. With many Luflick lord, leads of the best, which means with many gracious men, lords of the best. Reckonly of the round table, all though rich brother, with rich revel aret and wretchless mirths. So they're having lots and lots of fun. Their turned talks by times full many. Justed full jolly this gentle nights. So they jousted and had lots of fun doing it. Mm-hmm. That's one thing you'll, we'll talk about, I'm sure, a lot with Sir Mallory, is how much they just love their violent games mm-hmm, they and do. It, so basically it would be like if all the men today played football but there was a good chance someone was going to die mm-hmm. and nobody would feel guilty about it and yeah. even that guy would say oh brothers at least i got to have this joust with you right before my guts were spilt upon the ground mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so then you have uh Sithen cared to the court, carols to make. They sing a lot. For there the feast was illic full 15 days. Their party was 15 days long. I read with some students about Henry VIII when he married Catherine of Aragon. Mm-hmm. Their little daughter died, and then they had a little boy. And they feasted and partied for so long that it almost, the history book that we were reading, almost made it sound like they just forgot about their baby. <laughs> and he died. Oh, no. And so then everybody at the party... 52 days, <laughs> just stayed for the funeral. Anyways, well, hey, these that... people back then, they knew how to party. <laughs> they didn't know how so. to take care of their kids. Mm-hmm. With all the meat and the mirth that men could advise, such glam and glorious to hear. So it was glam, it was glamorous, man. Mm-hmm. There right. den upon day, dancing on nights, all was hap upon high in house and chambers. All was happiness to a high degree, basically is what that means. With lords and ladies as levest and thought, I'm just reading this. I'm assuming people want to hear the original Middle English. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah. With all the will of the world, they wand their salmon. The most kid knights under Chris Selvin. The most renowned knights under Christ himself. And the love locust ladies that ever live hidden. Ooh, the love locust Ooh. ladies. <laughs> well, yeah. So go call your wife a love locust lady. Hey, love locust hey, lady. Hey, love locust lady. Means loveliest, apparently. Love locust, probably. Is love how you locust said. lady. And he, the Kumlockest king that the court had, so Arthur, the handsomest king ever. For all this was fair folk in her first age. And then you have the little Bob here on sill in the hall that happenest under heaven, king highest none of will. Hit were now great knights in Nevin, 
so hearty I'll hear on heel. So you hear the rhyme there at the end. Mm-hmm. So it ends with that little bob and will, and that kind of takes you to the next section. It functions quite a bit like a couplet at the end of a Shakespearean sonnet, moves, mm-hmm. you, moves you towards the end of it. But yeah, so since this was a contemporary of uh, Chaucer's English, this is also what we would call Middle English, which is always fun. I don't think we, we talked about this when we did the Beowulf episodes years ago, mm-hmm. but people typically think of Shakespearean English as being Old English, right? which is absolutely wrong. Shakespearean English is considered modern English. Right. This would have been the transition where you see the French influences. So we talked briefly about William of Normandy mm-hmm. conquering and then how you had Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine all then their French roots coming into England and mixing with the Anglo-Saxon Germanic roots of the English language. And that shifts in the 13th and 14th centuries into what we call the uh, Middle English as we begin to see that hybrid language come together. Mm-hmm. And then finally, a couple centuries later with Shakespeare, you would have what we call modern English. And old English is, is Anglo-Saxon, and you can't understand a word of it. Hwait, the word we say all the time, is old English. Mm-hmm. So. so were you giving us a decent rendition of the pronunciation there? Is that about how it would have sounded? What? The, the way when you were reading... The section from uh, probably. I mean, it would be fun for. Uh, I guess you could probably provide a link to someone reading the old English or the Middle mm-hmm. English. Sorry, it's probably a bit more with your British accent, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, the Lord of the Land, is lent on his games to hunt in holts and heath at Hinds Berain. Such a psalm he there slow be that the sun held it of those and of other dare to them that were wonder. Something. Was it? Would it? Would it have been more lilting like that, or would it have been? And I don't know the answer. I'm just asking. Or would it have been more guttural and kind of what we think of as Germanic? I don't know. Let's. You want to see if we can find someone reading it? Yeah, totally fun. Yeah, we're nerding it's, out today. When when Jake is away, the the nerds will play. The nerds will play. That's right. <laughs> this is the kind of poetry that would happen if we all if we all wrote poetry and it went in a canister for 200 years. <laughs> I'd be like, this is amazing. Wow. <laughs> this Jake was. He must have been a king among kings. A king among kings. To keep these nerds at bay. To keep these nerds at bay. Because all those nerds wanted was to play. All the nerds wanted to play, but King Jake kept them at bay. He said that wasn't okay. Yeah. I'm going to have to use my phone. Duh. I have a phone I can use. You can't have use, a phone. Can't use my computer to do this. I don't know who this guy is, though. Is it just some dork that doesn't know what he's talking about? I don't know. So I'm trying to... A reading from Sir Gawain in the Green Knight. He looks like he doesn't know what he's talking about. So let's find somebody else. <laughs> well, folks, while Brandon looks that up, let me just remind you that Brandon is a wonderful man and we'd like to... And brings a ton of knowledge to these podcasts and a great personality. Kind of like my wife. She brings lots of stuff and a great personality. That's the thing that I like the most about her. Now... In order to support Brandon's continued ability to do this podcast, you just go to patreon.com forward slash the booking. You make a little donation there and get us up to the amount where we'll be able to support him and the amount where we'll be able to torture him with our own Christmas game of torture and seduction called uh, Ready Player Two. A book okay. that we're going to make him read. All right, and here he this comes. This is a professor from MIT. This is legit. All right. Thratum, Monaghan Mactham, Merda Settler of Tach, Exoda Erlas, Sithen Arrest Worth, Fair Shaft Funden, Hathas Froverybad. Pretty sure that's Beowulf he's reading there. Yeah. All right, now a Middle English reading. Nice. So he's going to read the first stanza of Scotland in the Green Knight. Uh, what people just heard there, if it didn't sound like anything that you understood was because you didn't. That's old English. And I think that kind of solidifies the point I was trying to make that absolutely you would not understand old English if you heard it. Right. In the original Middle English. Sithen the sage and the assault was sacred at Troy, the Borg, Britnid and Brent to Brondus and Ascus, the tulk that the traumas of Trazen there rocked was treated for his treachery, the truest on Ertha. It was Aeneas the Arthel and his he akinda that sith in depressed provinces and patronus become, well near of all the way in the West Elis. For richer Romulus to Roma, 
riches him sweeter with great babonsa that bore hebeus upon first. Anyways, interesting. So it's so we're talking like tripping off the tongue, mouth forward, kind of lyrical, not not Literal. real, not real guttural and Germanic, yeah, and barbaric and like the bad guys at the beginning of Gladiator, which is w- yeah. when I think of Anglo-Saxon sort of things, I I just picture barbarians and like animal skins with blue face paint and yep stuff like similar that. to how i was reading it actually yeah very yep that that is correct let it not go unremarked brandon is a genius all right folks let's t- or all right brandon what else do we want to say about sir gawain and the green knight anything else worth mentioning about context Con- context wise no i think we should just jump into the story and point out kind of how it ties to what we were saying last time yeah well how does it how does it tie to what we were saying last time? Well, it's got both that chivalric overtone that would have been inherited from France, and but definitely the weird Celtic stuff as well. Yeah, it's a weird mix. And for me, I'm sure we'll talk about this a lot as we as we go on. That is a large part of the fascination of the Arthur mythos is that combination of old paganism and new sort of civilization and the creepy fairy culture that's always kind of on the edges and threatening to bring things down, but then Christendom standing right in the middle of it. All, all the kind of interplay between those, I mean, if I can just sound like a dorky anthropology student or something like that, the interplay between those two cultures and what it says about the actual interplay between those two cultures is just fascinating. The way that they, the ritual, ritualistic and magical way that they wield the name of Christ, even in this story, that they they use Christian things and ideas, but they use them in a sort of weird, synchronistic, pagan way in a lot of these stories. Like there's just, it has that little riff, whiff of what we think of as Roman Catholicism, but also just a whiff of, of magic or superstition to it. It's similar to what we would have seen in Beowulf. Absolutely similar to what we would have seen in Beowulf. And I, I just find that that endlessly fast fascinating and there is you know if i can sound like a really dorky modern anthropologist type person there is something that feels kind of freudian about it like we're we're repressing pagan civilization with our with our christendom but it's always gonna you know the darkness is always gonna the of of fairy culture is always gonna be creeping around the edges and bubble up in these weird places and yeah, I just find it really interesting. Yeah, so. I mean, even from here at the beginning, it's just this huge feast day at the new year, mm-hmm. right? And then, so here you see the sort of courtliness, right? With all the, the New Year's gifts, Hansel's hands as they shouted, handed them out, competed for these presents in playful debate. Ladies laughed loudly, though they lost the game, and he that won was not woeful, as may well be believed. All this merriment they made till their meat was served. And so it's just a high feast day. Everybody's sitting around on what I think at the time, from what I understand in castles, is they would put moss down as carpet, hmm. which was kind of cool. Yeah, that's interesting. Until it got so full of rotted food that they would have to scoop it out and replace it with new moss. So, there you go. Anyways. And here, the like even in stanza five, the high courtliness, if we're trying to make this argument that it kind of mixes both these together. But mm-hmm. Arthur would not eat until all were served. His youth made him so merry with the moods of a boy he liked. Lighthearted life, so loved the, he the less either long to be lying or long to be seated. But either word, either, I mean, in other words, if fights against his nature, he would like to be served, but he's still as kingly, and so he's going to wait till everybody's served, right? Right. And then, let's see. Uh, for, so they get to the bishop is there. Now of all the service, he'll say nothing more. There we go. For hardly had the music but a moment ended, and the first course in the court as the custom had been served, when there passed through the portals a perilous horseman, the mightiest on middle earth in measure of height, from his gorge to his girdle so great and so square, and his loins and his limbs so long and so huge, that half a troll upon earth I trow that he was, but the largest man alive at least I declare him, and yet the seemliest for his size it could sit on a horse. So anyways, so you have this, well, hang on, we need to finish this, don't we? For though in back and in breast his body was grim, both his paunch and his waist were properly slight, and all his features followed his fashion so gay at end mode. For at the hue men gaped aghast in his face and form that showed, as a fay man fell he passed, and green all over glowed. It's like a fairy, he was glowing all over green. 
So here's the element of strangeness coming into the castle, into this high courtly feast they're having. But I think especially some of the weird Catholic Christian overtones come later, especially with like the chapel and stuff at the end when he meets the Green Knight face to face, right? Yeah. So. Yeah, it's just that's where you get really weird ahead. mix. It's, it's just a weird mix. That's, that's all yep. I was going to say. And so this poet does like to spend quite a bit of time describing things, doesn't he? I think yeah. he spends like four stanzas describing who this green knight is. And then finally, you know, you get what's this guy is here for. Right. I mean, I don't mind because it's a really simple story. I mean, it's yeah. it's, it's it's all in the description. It's all in padding it out one way or another, showing your poetic skill. So Yeah, and I guess one thing to point out about this poem is in kind of the classic fashion that we are not as familiar with with our novels today, the psychology psychology is not so much of an interest to this person as the actions. No. Right? You're not going to get into Sir Gawain's They, they wouldn't have distinguished between the two. They just, they just wouldn't have thought in that category. Yeah. No, not at all. And so you you get to, see, that's what you're going to see is you're going to see the outward appearance of things and you're going to see the actions of people. You're not going to get their inner thoughts. You're not going to get any sort of inner dialogue or anything like that. Instead, it's all about the, not even, it's unfair to say it's just about the externals, but that's just how they thought of storytelling at the time. This was way, way before any emphasis on inner dialogue would ever be a thing. Inner dialogue, you're going to start seeing a little bit with Shakespeare with his asides, like when his, right. when, his, when his characters get to kind of step to the side of the stage and talk. That's his attempt at letting you inside their mind. But it's still not to the level of, you know, what you're used to with modern novels. Mm-hmm. Really, you don't get that until you get Jane Austen with her yeah. free indirect style that she pioneered. Free indirect style. We do like to talk about that. We sure do. We sure do. Anyways, no, it's a very simple story. Action is character. Character is action. There's no, there's no real distinguishing of those I mean, two things. And even with the way, so you get sort of the strangeness of the whole courtly. So C.S. Lewis, in his essay on epic, he wrote about the word solempne, S-O-L-E-M-P-N-E. It's where you have all what we would think of as pomp and circumstance, but with like a both a joyful and a very serious overtone to it. Right. And so I think you really get, I think this captures kind of what he's talking about with Solemne in the sense that you can have this great big feast and you can have all this seriousness about it, but it all be full of jollity and feasting and happiness as well. And then, you know, you have a giant green man appear Mm -hmm. in the castle and Arthur, you having the right of being the king says, welcome the head of his household, Arthur, my name is, all light as thou lovest me, and linger, pray thee. Mm-hmm. And what may thy wish be, and a while we shall learn. So, in other words, he welcomes this big green, jolly, the jolly green giant to the feast. Not so, so jolly green giant. Yeah, so nothing is weird about it. <laughs> so, <laughs> Yeah, well, that is that is the other thing that is always interesting to try and gauge across the centuries about these stories is what the people in the stories find fascinating or not, or take for granted, yeah. and why, whether it's their codes, their morals. I mean, even just the fact that the woman coming into his room and stealing kisses is not entirely outside of Gawain's realm of experience is interesting. But also monsters walking into halls and just being like, yo, is apparently not outside of the frame of reference of King Arthur and all these guys, at least not enough to for them to be thoroughly freaked out. Yeah, and to just go back to your point about the weird mix of religiousness in here, doesn't he doesn't the green giant say that this is a Christmas pastime of his? Yeah, I think so or yeah, and so I crave in this court only a Christmas pastime mm-hmm. since it is Yule and New Year. In other words, he does this every Christmas where he goes and he challenges people to So maybe we should just briefly outline the story. Yeah. So it's pretty simple. What it is yeah. is we have this feast day, New Year's feast. Everybody's partying, and then in King Arthur's court, if that in King Arthur's court, yeah. Clear. And so then into the court, while they're in the middle of their feast, comes this Green Knight on his horse, and he says, and King Arthur invites him to stay, and he says, "No, actually, I'm just here because I've got this Christmas pastime that I enjoy. We're going to exchange blows, and any of your knights are brave enough 
they get to take a strike at me. If I survive, I get to take a strike at them, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe it's it's like I get to take a strike at him the next Christmas time or something like that, right? In a year's time. Yeah, he lays down the... the so he lays if down, I survive. If I survive, that's right. Right. Well, I guess we could just read. If any so hardy in this house here holds that he is, if so bold be his blood or his brain be so wild that he stoutly dares strike one stroke for another, then I will give him as my gift this gearsome costly, this axe, tis heavy enough, to handle as he pleases, and I will abide the first brunt, here bear as I sit. If any fellow be so fierce as my faith to test, hither let him haste to me and lay hold of this weapon. I hand it over forever so he can have it as his own, and I will stand a stroke from him stock still on this floor, provided they'll lay down this law, that I may deliver him another claim I. And yet a respite I'll allow, to a year and a day go by. Come quick, and let's see now if any here dare reply. So in other words, you get a year and a day, and then I'm going to strike you. Mm-hmm. And they've got their chivalry bro code kind of thing going, which means that King Arthur, basically, he's not going to not let that challenge go. King Arthur himself is going to do it. Yep. And but, but of course, Gawain, being a very noble soul, doesn't want to let his king be put to that test. So Yeah, because the, this guy kind of is rough and he's out for the fight. Like when nobody answers immediately, he says, What, is this Arthur's house? Said he thereupon, the rumor of which runs through realms unnumbered. Where now is your haughtiness and your high conquest, your fierceness and fell mood and your fine boasting? Right. And so yeah, it's so it's kind of a the beginning of a pro wrestling match here. It's a it's some some trash talk. Yeah, and so Arthur, like Nathan said, is going to do it. And so Sir Gawain said, "No, let me do it." And so he gets up, he takes the axe, and he cuts the guy's head off. But problem solved. You would think. Lo and behold, that problem's not solved. The guy with his head cut off goes and he picks up his head, and the head then proceeds to talk. <laughs> so, and say basically. Let's see if we can find. So he got himself ready. The fair head on the f- floor fell from his shoulders and folk fended it with their feet. As forth it went rolling. <laughs> so it's rolling around all the party guests' feet and they're kind of mm-hmm. kicking it away from themselves. The blood burst from the body, bright on the greenness, and yet neither faltered nor fell the fierce man at all. But stoutly he strode forth, still strong on his shanks, and roughly he reached out among the rows that stood there, caught up his comely head and quickly upraised it, and then hastened to his horse, laid hold of the bridle, stepped into stirrup iron, and strode up aloft, his head by the hair and his hand holding, and he settled himself then in the saddle as firmly as if unharmed by a mishap, though in the hall he might wear no head, his trunk he twisted round, the gruesome body that bled, in many fear then vowed as soon as his speech was sped. (laughs) For the head in his hand he held it up straight towards the fairest at the table he twisted the face. And it lifted up its eyelids and looked at them broadly, and made such words with its mouth as may be recounted. <laughs> See thou get ready, Gawain, to go as thou vowst, and as faithfully seek till thou find me, good sir, as thou hast promised in this place in the presence of these knights, to the green chapel go thou, and get thee, I charge thee, such a dent as thou hast dealt. Indeed, thou hast earned a nimble knock in return on New Year's morning. So yeah, and there a you go. A nimble knock. Say what? Yeah. A nimble knock. I like that turn of phrase. Uh, yeah, that that is. I just want to take a moment to appreciate the description of that guy picking up his head and holding it forth for all the people to scream and the the eyes opening up. I don't think your Stephen Kings or your Edgar Allan Poe's or what have you could could. Do, I I don't know that I've heard a better description of a specter picking up his head and using it to still talk to all the little details first well, he's holding it by the hair and then he thrusts it forward and then the eyes open it's just like what, could you do of, a better talking head scene well one of the strangest parts of this i think is that the response meanwhile the king and sir gawain so everybody's kind of shocked after this right <laughs> yes she is meanwhile the king and sir gawain at the green man laugh and smile was to men had appeared twas plain and marvel beyond denial though arthur the king high though the king uh, so that though arthur the high king in his heart marveled he let no sign of it be seen, but said then aloud to the dear queen so comely with courteous words, Dear lady, today be not downcast at all. Such cunning play well becomes the Christmas tide. Interludes and the like and laughter and singing amid those no- these noble dances of knights and of dames. Nonetheless, to my food, I may fairly betake me. So I'm going to go back and I'm going to eat. 
I mean, that's a pretty gruesome scene right there before this. There's blood all over the green, you know. And then they're going to, he and Sir Gawain are apparently just laughing at this. Hey, that was something else, huh? So, I mean, I'm imagining the movie version, the evil monster says his thing and walks out. And then there's kind of a long pause. And then King Arthur says, all right, let's party. And then yeah. he goes, dang, nee, 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 nee. <laughs> Yeah. It's like, it's still Christmas, people. <laughs> it's still Christmas. <laughs> and that seemed pretty Christmassy to me. So let's dance. <laughs> you had your green and you had your red. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's yeah, you Christmassy. did. It was about as Christmassy as it comes. Yeah. Gets. So. <laughs> Anyways, that was strange. I thought that was funny. And it gets at something that I just, I don't know how a modern movie maker would do that without it seeming unnatural. Yeah, no, that, that's what's so interesting to me about reading this as a, as a record of its time. Like, is this guy actually expressing something about like just accidentally is he actually is 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 this poet capturing something about the psychology of people at that time about the psychology of kings at that time or is it just a dorky conceit in a silly story that doesn't reflect anything you know well i think if you go back to that one stanza so the king had to show himself at all times to be composed and to be ready for anything and not to be surprised Right. right today, we, the way we would do it is like the the candles would all be dim, and then King Arthur would stand up, and he would be very serious, you know, and mm-hmm. everybody would be very grave and troubled after the night left, and it would really play up on the darkness of it all, right? Right. But here instead, it's like this comes into the court, but in the end, it's King Arthur's responsibility to keep the levity and to keep the levity and also the seriousness balanced. So he was mm-hmm. able to be courteous, and he was able to be serious when the night entered. But in the end, he also doesn't want to show that this is beyond him, you know? Right. Because it does say he marveled in his heart, but in the end, he's King Arthur, and he has to stay composed for the sake of his people. Yeah, and especially for the sake of the ladies. (laughs) Yeah. So, that's right. I think that's really important, is that you do have the ladies there. And the first person he talks to is Guinevere. He says, dear lady, today be not downcast at all, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So. Just because a monster was holding his head and making proclamations to us doesn't mean it's not Christmas. Yeah, but it does really speak to that time that that composure of the court and the courteousness to ladies and the making sure that they're not troubled and the making sure that they realize that the king at all times has his strength and his especially strength of mind. It's interesting. It really is interesting. Yeah. Well, so basically, Gawain's got this date with destiny that is going to happen a year later and we we shoot forward to the time when he goes out to seek the green chapel to find the green knight and honestly this is when the story gets weird this is when it kind of takes a left turn into what i don't think any modern person would be able to predict where it goes from here yeah because you get quite a few stanzas of just this next part and you can really there's not a whole lot to say about it beyond just what happens right Right. So, so what this, happens? Well, he goes and he finds this uh, castle where he stays for a while, right? Mm-hmm. And there's this lord and lady there, and they're very kind to him. But the lord makes some sort of bargain with him that he'll go hunting every day and he'll give... Is this among, right? Right. He's going to go hunting every day and he's going to give Sir Gawain whatever he catches. Right. On the condition that Sir Gawain gives him whatever he catches that day. Right. And so then it's just a long series of, well, it's kind of like Joseph and Potiphar's wife, Mm -hmm. because who he's left with at the castle is the Lord's lady, and every day she attempts to seduce him. Right. And the first day she gets a kiss, and so when the Lord gets back, he gives Sir Gawain what he caught. I say, I I think it's Sir Gawain. And then Sir Gawain gives him a kiss. Yeah. And then the next day, it's two kisses. And the guy's like... uh Where'd you get that kiss? And Gawain's like, I'll never tell. That wasn't part of our deal. The guy's like, <laughs> it was my hey. wife, wasn't it? <laughs> no, he's not. Though. She's always so kissing the knights. <laughs> um, That's what you expect. But instead, the guy's just like, oh, Gawain, you card. And yeah, this goes on for three days. And it's not like there's only only one other person in the castle with you. There is a there is a creepy old lady also. Yeah, it could which be I sp- her. It could be her. Yeah. Could could be the creepy old hag. Mm, could be. Could just be the creepy old hag. The third day, there's going to be a turn. This is the day before he has to go away, right? And go face the green knight. And she offers to give him her sash, which will protect him. 
and three kisses. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and when the husband comes home, he only gives him the three kisses and he keeps the sash for himself. Ooh, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's a little bit of, na- well, not naughtiness, but just a little bit of weakness that we see. So when I talked earlier about the hero's quest, you know, often at the end, there'll be one thing that the hero does that they have to pay for at the end to right. really become the hero. Mm-hmm. And so there's the one slip up he made. Up until then, you see the same courtly manner that we saw in King Arthur's court, where it really matters the way you treat a lady, but especially the hospitality of the guests. So you saw Arthur welcome the guest in, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I think that had to be a large, so it was the ladies, but also just, you know, you're the, you, this house belongs to you, right? And you are going to decide whether or not there's panic or whether or not there's hospitality, even in the face of weirdness and strangeness. Right. So that had to be a big part of it as well, right? That King Arthur was not going to let this dampen his party. Right. Exactly. It's just so funny. I just, like, if that happened at the White House, would the president get up and say, okay, people, let's keep going at our Christmas party? (laughs) It's Christmas. Yeah. Joe Biden. Well, that was weird. Joe Biden might do that, but yeah. I don't know that it would be a sign of <laughs> senility. His, his competence, yes. Yeah. Maybe Joe Biden is King Arthur. Maybe Joe Biden is King Arthur. All right. So then you finally get to part four, where he and he gets himself dressed up. He gets himself, his horse dressed up, and then he leaves the castle. And this is where we get to finally see the Green Chapel, right? Mm-hmm. And so... And it's just a borrow, debating in his mind, what might the thing be? It had a hole at the end at either side, and with grass and green patches was grown all over, and was all hollow within, not be it but an old cavern, mm. or a cleft in an old crag. He could not it name aright. Can this be the chapel green? O Lord, said the dev- gentle knight, here the devil might, said I ween. His matin's about midnight. And so you see the wilderness and the strangeness of it all. Yeah. Um, which I think gets back to this must be what the West Midlands of England are like, right? Just mm-hmm. sort of a bit wild with hills and caverns and clefts in the stone like this that just would really play with the imagination. I do think that environment and stuff like this really matters for someone's storytelling. And then you have the uh, the knight show up, right? Mm-hmm. And so Sir Gawain puts his neck down. He's going to take the blow and... The guy gives him a small cut instead. Does he try to cut the guy's head off first, right? No, he flinches when the guy... That's right. He flinches and the guy makes fun of him for it. Right. The guy's like, hey, hey, I, I let you do your thing last year, so come yeah. on, dude. And then and I think so. somehow, just because of the sort of fairy tale motif of it all, the guy does three swings, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And, and then the, the third, third one, one, he just barely brushes him, right? Right. Nicks him a little bit. And he says he was just... Testing his nerve. Right. And do you want to finish it out from there? Well, he, he it turns out to be, surprise, surprise, the nice lord of the castle. His name is, oh, what is his name? Bertilic de Humperdinck or something like that? Hot dessert. Hot dessert? Hot dessert, yeah. Ooh. Hot dessert, yeah. Well, and speaking of hot dessert, he's, he's the one that told his wife to test Gawain by uh, trying to seduce him every day so it's all been and it's all actually been masterminded by the one of the great villains of arthur lore morgana le fay the witch arthur's half sister who's always causing trouble in these stories and so this guy's just a regular dude that she's transformed into the green knight so that he could do this whole thing and so lancelot is really embarrassed because he took the sash from the lady and wasn't honest about it, and learns a lesson about being honest, goes back to Camelot, tells everybody what happened, and they're all really happy and excited, and Gawain has to be honest that he wasn't honest, though, and so everybody, I think, starts wearing white sashes just to celebrate green, Gawain. Green sashes. But, or green sashes, yes, right. Green sashes, yeah, that makes more sense. To celebrate Gawain, but also to remind them that knights should be honest so yeah so that was his fault there and that's why he got the little neck there at the end Mm -hmm. because he didn't he lied about the green sash right so it turns into a little bit of a morality play there at the end but yeah not not sure how uh, successful of a morality play it is but it's some kind of a morality play be honest 
there's morals and they're at play, I guess. Yeah, and so uh, that's really that's really the story, and I think we've kind of touched on everything I wanted to say about it. Really, yeah, so. it's a it's there's a reason that I think people like J.R.R. Tolkien are fascinated by this one. There's a reason that this one gets more purchased than some of the other random stories. For one thing, it's got a really spooky. It's got that, as we liked to say a million times during our Tolkien episodes, it's got that Fey feeling to it. it even says I the think, word Fey, right? It, does it actually say the word Fey? Green Knight was a Fey man. Yeah. It was famous. Yeah, there you go. So it's right. It's right there in the text. It's got that. It's also got this fun kind of ticking time bomb. As soon as the problem's set up, you're you're waiting the whole time to see how Gawain's gonna get out of it. And so I think it's it's just a more. If I had to guess, why this one seems to have stuck a little bit more than a million other stories that are very similar, because these knights are always going on adventures similar to this. The the reason this one kind of stands out is it's just a little bit more elegant in its construction. You've got the you've got the game hanging over everything, and then you've got all the kind of I don't want to say erotic stuff. That's not it's not it's not like anyone's gonna sin when they read this. But you've got you've got the chivalry stuff, which is interesting. I don't know that I've ever quite taken the time to understand what. The code of chivalry. Maybe we'll talk more about this with Mallory. I don't know. I think but we can talk about it with Mallory. But yeah, I mean, you really see it a lot here with the importance of the king and the honor of the king, and the and really one thing to pay attention to as we move forward is how that means the king bears in himself like this impossible task of being the king, right? Right. Like that moment there, you can see the struggle. He he saw the marvel, but he still is the king and he has to react in a certain way. And that'll carry forth in with Mallory with the whole relationship between Guinevere and Lancelot. Right. But especially it was to protect the weak, to protect ladies, and to never have an unfair advantage, right? Those sorts of things with the whole courtly and chivalry. But there's a whole code code of chivalry we could read on maybe the next episode for context before we move into uh, well, Mallory because it's going to be more important for him than it is here. What's already striking here and what I think we'll have to litigate with Mallory even more is the code when it comes to sexual ethics especially because they don't seem especially concerned about fornication or adultery except for when it violates honor in a weird way but if you can get away with it you can't get away with, i don't know I, i've never quite understood like in this case the nobody condemns the green knight for putting his wife forward yeah as a seductress and when she tells Gawain the way that she seduces Gawain, and she says are you really going to leave me hanging here it, it, it ill becometh a knight to not give me a kiss right now and Gawain's like oh crap yeah you're right like i guess i have to give her a kiss. And so the sexual ethics of these stories are pretty interesting. They are weird. And uh, and, and, that, and that's we're that's going to influence obviously the Lancelot and Guinevere story the most, but yeah. And so yeah, it all gets tangled up and really strange for sure. Yep. So. Well, we'll have we'll have a chance to talk about that more as we go. Anything else you want to say about Sir Gawain and the Green Knight? Not really. How about you? I don't think so. I think I just want to say that I am thankful to our patrons, people that support us at patreon.com forward slash the bookening. And I'm especially thankful today for Sir Robert and Lady Rhonda, nice. for the artful Anthony Dodger, for Little Anthony Cigar Store, for the immortal Chelsea E, for Jimmy Beam and Little Annie Oakley. For Lily of the Valley, for Andrew and Esther the Lovebirds. I uh, mean, I feel like I have to juice this up somehow, but I don't know. Maybe I should just read them all slowly. Our patrons of the round table. Patrons of our round table, yes. People like the Keith Master, people like David's Mighty Men Trucking, people like John and Jill and Little Baby Max, Sir Little Baby Max, that is. People who like Jay and Katie who are cold and love cheese and also C.S. Lewis and also that rooster story that's going to be interesting to talk about, including Till We Have Faces. People like Fairy Princess of Wonder and Happiness, Mother Beth. People like Consul Prime Adam. People like Jeremy, the Dark Hooded Lord of Death. People like Nathan, not me. People like Maya, the Dark Hooded Lady of Death. People like Ryan, the Red Avenger, and Judith, the Ladies of Justice. DJ Sammy G, Benny and Danny Tiberius, Eric and Catherine from Yon Window Breaks, Professor and Lady X, Lavender's Green, Dylan, Dylan, 
Noah Constrictor, Mara Cheap, the fair and fragrant maiden, Chloe, Anthony, who is cold and hates life, liberty, and the pursuit of cheese, Jujitsu Jeffrey, the Texas Ranger, Rachel, 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 Midnight Ninja Ellen, Return of the Jedediah, Jay of Rack and Ruin, Timothy the Rider at Dawn, Eric and Kate the Camp Champ Kings who are warm and love bees, Maddie, 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 Matt, Man, Sweet Jamie Sunshine, Tyler the Keeper of Eternal Darkness, and Laura the Keeper of Eternal Light, Cold Steel, Cody, Jacqueline the Librarian, Barbarian, John Babadilla, Bomb Diggity, and Captain Tadil, his mate Saxophone Alex, the other Saxophone Alex, and Dubstep Danny, Ryan the Terror of Texas, and Eric of the Cream and Crimson who are stuck in the cold, please send cheese, although I don't think there's any longer stuck in the cold from what I understand of their personal lives, Ben Solo and Kylo Ren. John the Cosmic King of Chaos, Matthew the Mind Flayer, and are you okay? Get your gun. Flight of the Valerie, Thor Ragnar, Josh, Steven, dot, 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 Peglodon. And, of course, Brandon, how could we forget Christopher the Flower Hulk? Christopher the Flower Hulk. He's a great guy. And uh, Lady of the Crystal Lake. Lady of the Crystal Lake. Isn't it Crystal Lake where old Jason Voorhees would go after teenagers? Yeah, I don't think we made that connection last time. You know what? It's fine. Crystal Lake is... Our listeners don't think of it that way. Now they do. Yeah, now they do. <sighs> well, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. We'll keep, we'll keep thinking about it, Lady of the Crystal Lake. All right. Well, Sir Brandon, this has been quite the adventure. Thank you for joining me on it. Thank you, Nathan. Farewell. For inviting me on it. You are welcome. And we bid thee welcome, or we bid thee farewell until next week, gentle listener. Bye.